Welcome to the Positive Education Podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon McGee. The Positive Education Podcast aims to engage with experts in the field of wellbeing and positive education in order to provide you with insights and strategies to advance positive education in your school environments and beyond. Today on the show, we have Janet etty Leal. Janet etty Leal is an author, speaker and mindfulness educator. Her consultancy, Meditation Capsules, has provided mindful life skill programs for organisations in Victoria, interstate and overseas. She has worked across a diverse range of sectors, including education, health, the corporate sector, sport and community wellbeing. Janet's key focus is to bring mindfulness to life in education with heart, mind and hands-on practices. Her creative mindful meditation programs have enhanced curriculum for thousands of students from early learning to year 12. Janet has been the mindfulness consultant for Geelong Grammar School for over 10 years. She has also facilitated staff training, parent information sessions and classes for students in government, private and special schools, as well as educational organisations. In 2010, she published Meditation Capsules, a mindfulness program for children. Studies based on this program have been undertaken by Masters and PhD candidates in universities in WA, South Australia, Victoria, New Zealand, Hong Kong, the US and Puerto Rico. In 2015, Janet developed primary and secondary nature-based mindfulness curriculum for Cool Australia and Planet Arc. Janet's new book, A Head Heart Start for Life, Creative Mindful Discoveries for Young Children, was also published in April 2018. Janet is the Secretary of the Board of the Meditation Association of Australia and a member of the Confluence Committee with the University of Divinity, which aims to promote dialogue between meditation traditions. She's an old friend of Geelong Grammar and I welcome you to the show, Janet. Thank you, Rianne. So can you share a little of your background, Janet, and how you came to this work of mindfulness education? Wow, it's been a journey of a lifetime, really. Mm. I started being interested in meditation when I was quite young and then I was forced Mm. (laughs) to get really involved, you know, with the tsunamis that one faces occasionally and my experience of um, mental illness and depression and anxiety. So that sort of really increased the learning curve. Mm. And it was... It was funny because I've just written an article about this and there was an absolute turning point as we often experience in life because I I did end up with a number of psychiatrists Mm. and one of them actually said to me, "Um, and do you have any children? And I said, yes, I have two. Mm. And he said, we'll probably be meeting them one day. (laughs) It was like... Whoa. And I thought, over my dead body. Mm. And so that's, in a way, that's really where my work began in earnest. And I thought, well, if I can start to, you know, sort of use all my learning and make this my life's path, then Mm. that's what it's become. And it really, I think with well-being education, but mindfulness in particular, it really is, it starts with the personal journey, doesn't it? I think so. It can't be authentic and it can't be effective in the work we're trying to do without that authenticity. So Mm. that's a, that's a perfect example, I suppose, of those authentic roots to your own work. Mm. And how long have you been working in this space for now? I've lost track. Yeah. It's, I mean, informally, 
Mm. Informally, probably about 30 years, Mm. but formally a good 20 years. And I know that you've got a teaching background as well, Janet. Mm. Yeah. Yes, I started, um, in fact, I started my career with a Bachelor of Education, Mm -hmm. specialising in art and craft. Mm. (laughs) It gives away my age. (laughs) Craft. I think it's back. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, it needs to be. I think we need it. I think we need to get our hands on, yeah. you know, earthy things. And so I, spo- I suppose from my experience, having observed you um, working with our students and participating in your workshops, I know that you really bring that strong educational background, a real understanding of how to work with young people, creativity, as well as a range of different influences that you've explored and been exposed to on your 30-something year journey with mindfulness. So... I would say that you are really the the greatest expert I know in working with young people in this space. So what advice can you offer teachers as to how to engage young people? What do you think really works when you are taking them on the journey? I think the pr- absolutely the prerequisite is to really develop your own practice. Mm. It's not something that you can authentically teach without your own journey mm. with the practice. And it's uh, one of my favourite books recently, <laughs> it never stops, of course, the, you know, the learning and the things you can discover mm. on this path, but it's May Trabandu and he wrote a book called Life with Full Attention, which is just wonderful. And he said, and I hadn't thought about this until he said it, and he said mindfulness is not taught It's caught. Mm. So you see the embodied, um, passionate presence of the teacher Mm. is actually something that children, you know, respond to. Mm. And it's incredibly compelling. So it's not just about teaching it. Mm. It's actually about modelling and embodying. And, And I don't think you actually have to be a mindfulness teacher. Any teacher can do that, you know, with their their true sincerity and authenticity and commitment. Mm. And just the utter presence in the classroom, isn't That's it? That's right. Yeah, that mindful presence. Yes. So in the work that you do with, with students, can you can you share a little bit about what a typical uh, workshop um, might involve with Janet Etty Lille? Well, there there is it, you know, I have evolved mm. over the years. I, I've learnt so much from the children. Mm. They have been and always are my teachers. I mean, I'm still in awe <laughs> of what happens in my lessons because I go in with my plan, of course, mm. but often they take me somewhere I hadn't imagined and they always, I'm always writing notes from what I learnt with them. And so actually, even if I'm working with three-year-olds and recently I've actually had a spate of working in a secondary school and I still have a similar kind of structure to the class where we actually start with taking our shoes off because that is quite, you know, quite a thing. It's kind of there's a symbol there of leaving your shoes at the door, leaving the past behind and actually feeling the soles of your feet because that actually effortlessly helps ground. It actually helps, help, helps us be present and remember we've got feet. Remember, we've got a body. Bring our head back to our body. Mm. So we start with that. And then we actually always, I always use music 
because I'm often working with children I've never met before and, you know, I've only got this lesson to, you know, touch their hearts and so I, I need and I also need to remember that every child in that class is unique and that there's always going to be this range of learning styles. Some are going to be more visual, some are going to be more auditory, some are more kinesthetic. So I do my best to address those different needs. So music and a bit of mindful movement. And it's funny because, you know, with primary children, they just love that. You know, they just jump right in. But with secondary, they're... It's so much a little bit more, more reticent, aren't they? <laughs> well, actually, they're often glued to the wall. Yeah. They're actually blue tacked to the wall. Mm. And I have to kind of shepherd them in. And I succeed. How do you do it? How do you shepherd them in? Well, I, you know, I have various means. Mm. But ultimately, because I take them from, you know, the movement, the music, and then to their minds. Yeah. So I always go from that to actually making sense. There's no point teaching practices if they don't make sense, yeah, really is not helpful to them. It mm. can feel weird and pointless. And so I spend time with their logic and their, you know, intellect to actually, and it depends on what the school requests and context. I mean, recently I've actually been, I am exploring spiritual dimensions of mindfulness and meditation in religious schools, which is wonderful. So um, it's really remembering who these children are and also the culture of the school mm. and what, they, what might be going on and other units of inquiry and adapting, not just going in with this, this is the way, because it works much better if it, if it really makes sense to them and catches their hearts if there's relevance. And mm. I know that in your work with our students, you've often explored and built upon a metaphor mm. or a narrative, which I love. Can you share a little bit about some of those metaphors or really, I think, even this year, some of the symbols that you've been working with to help students in between your sessions? Oh, yes. Well, when I plan the Geelong Grammar course, I always spend quite a lot of time really you know, being curious as to what their interests would be. And it's uh, it's amazing how, yeah, you know, primary children still love the classics, the classics yeah. like The Wizard of Oz and The Magic Fire. And there's such a richness in those stories. There's so many different character strengths they can learn, you know, discover. And, and you see, this is what it's all about. Really, what I'm doing is guiding their discovery. It's not a prescription. Mm. It's not me telling them anything. I'm actually their scribe. A lot of my time in the lesson, I would love for them to get up and write on the whiteboard, but I'd never get that. Well, (laughs) I do. Sometimes they do, and sometimes they actually draw, which is just magic. Mm. Um, It depends on how many children there are in the class and how long I've got. But I'm their scribe. And I put on the board all the things that they tell me. So they're running the lesson as much as me. And I think people can forget this with mindfulness and meditation, that you can't impose it on anybody. Mm. It's an invitation. And what you are doing is guiding their unique personal discoveries Mm. and giving them the opportunity to really be captivated. So that's my aim. Oh, and, you know... you. 
you do it so well and I think it's so holistic, you know, bringing in the body, the, the narrative, uh, meeting students where they're at, understanding the culture of the school and the and the spiritual context. And I suppose um, that's of interest to me as well, Janet. I know, you know, this particular space that you've been working in more recently um, is so pertinent and so important uh, for schools on their own mindfulness journey who do come with a religious context. So can you share a little bit about your insights there as to mindfulness in perhaps um, religious schools and, and how what place it has there? Well, I just see it as an absolutely perfect fit. Mm. Um, and uh, where we're starting, I'm working with a doctor of philosophy and uh, a priest, and we are starting in the Christian space, but our intention is to move beyond that. Uh, so we've literally been discussing this for three years. It's a long wow. journey. And this is the year that I've actually started the pilot lessons. So the pilot lessons have been taking place with primary children and secondary. And it's just been wondrous. I'm loving it. And I'm actually then creating new teaching aids. Mm. Um, using. I always, with my teaching aids, they're always simple. Things that they recognise, like glass jars yes <laughs> and rubber bands yeah. and and it's just and so what what I've been doing is with my secondary students is literally taking the whole cohort in the chapel space mm. and relating mindful ideas and concepts in that space and then taking them into the practice mm. in individual classes and with the primary children again play-based and instead of you know, using words like compassion, for example. This is how you can tailor it. Have the most wonderful class on Mother Mary. <laughs> and I actually drew a drawing of very basic Mary with her arms holding a space. And they told me what her qualities were. And then they meditated with those qualities. Wow. It was just beautiful. It's just an ongoing exploration. I know you're always so open to new ideas and um, you're always going on this course or that, but also just working in these dif different contexts, you obviously just learn so much and it, oh, yes. it deepens your practice, I suppose. Yes, there's no destination. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a journey. It's the journey. It's the journey. Janet, you work across the spectrum of ages and we've spoken about some of the challenges with adolescents, but we know that you know, many of the mental health issues we're concerned about will start in primary school but really do become very evident in the, those adolescent years. When do you think is the best time to uh, introduce young people to mindfulness? At what age can it be most effective, do you think? I think it boils down to, you know, the possibilities and that over all these years, I mean, I'm actually secondary trained. Oh. <laughs> and that's where I started. I actually started with year 12, stress management, because schools wouldn't let me in. Mm. You know, it was foolhardy enough to call myself a meditation consultant mm. 20 years ago, and they just didn't get it at all. And so I had to actually create Semin you know, workshops called stress management, study skills, and then chip my way down. Mm. And, and I kept saying to schools, well, great for year 12, but actually it's a bit late. You know, they need it year 10. And then, well, actually this is a bit late. They need it year 8. And then before I knew it, I was into primary. And then that just took off. And because if you're using a play-based approach 
inquiry approach and you're using stories and you're using joyful movement, it's a perfect fit. And, you know, children, there's no resistance. There are no... Whereas when you're working with secondary, you do gently and patiently have to work with where they're at. And it, and it's not that it's not worthwhile. It is. I love working with secondary. But the palette is much broader and richer with primary children. And that's why, you know, last – well, I've spent – put a lot of effort into really honing that. And, you know, now I'm working with three- and four-year-olds. And I just – when I first did, I was very much out of my comfort Oh, gosh, so. I wouldn't know where to start. Well, What's that like? Well, you just have to be very present because they'll just walk away, you know, <laughs> if, you, if you're not engaging them. So I literally just found my way and they taught me. Um, you know, incredibly present with them. And what's your message? What's your purpose, I suppose, when you're when you're working with that age group? Again, it's what I was saying before. It's getting you're stepping aside from my, um, you know, my theories mm. or my beliefs mm. to be really curious about what they're interested in and what they will enjoy, what be fun, and what would captivate them. So that's what I'm always doing with young children, with any kids really. It doesn't matter what age they are. What's the entry point? What is going to – how are they going to catch this? Because mm. I'm not going to impose it. So they've got to – they have to be captivated. And so I love that you've been using Alice in Wonderland um, – on, in your work more recently. Can you share a little bit about how you've been drawing on that wonderful story and um, what what a, a lesson um, looks like around this particular narrative? Well, what a great question, Rhiannon, because it's just hot off the press. Ah. <laughs> Two weeks ago, I was with um, Bostock stu- and Karaya mm-hmm. students mm-hmm. Uh, using this story and I've just had a ball you know, and again, it's taken me places I could never imagine. It's made me look at my life. I've even been looking up letters that Lewis Carroll wrote. Oh, wow. Just, I'm going to read them next term to mm. the kids. And I just had the most exceptional lessons. And I actually put an empty brain on the board with a frame around it, with a bow, look like we're drawing around, to look, make it recognisably that we're talking about Alice. Yep. And then a body. And we did this absolutely incredible inquiry and one of the things that troubles me about the way sometimes that mindfulness is taught taught it can be a bit prescriptive and dictatorial and when you get into emotions this is a really hmm, it's an area that needs a lot of nuance and really skill in you know even leading discussions and, you know, often the bullet points of people, you know, here are the outcomes, here's the benefits, and one of them often is emotional regulation. That makes me feel crushed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and some of the other things they put in those bullet points, that's not what I'm about. So when we did this inquiry into how Alice was travelling in this story, what, <laughs> what was going on in her brain, I was blown away by because they knew so... First of all, we started with what she was thinking and I explained to them that our thoughts are words. Mm. So she'd be having all these words So they and they got the most incredible words. Her head was full of words. And then I said, but it's actually different in the body, isn't it? Um, so if she was thinking these words, what was she feeling? 
And this concerns me because I find this everywhere with children, with primary children. Unfortunately, they have words like anxiety in their vocabulary and stressed. And so they wanted to put those in her body. And I said, well, actually, no, Mm. we're going to think, we're going to feel, put your hand on your heart, your hand on your tummy. What does it feel if you're trying to sit with a mad hatter who's nuts? (laughs) (laughs) And so I began to draw out of them words like yucky Mm. and you know, tight and stiff and hard and then then got them to draw what those feelings would look like and that's much richer and that's, you know, you've got to really be careful about labelling things and judging things. It's uh, What I'm leading them is on a, on a journey of discovery with a sense of being an adventurer, you see, because mm. Alice adventures in Wonderland. Well, this is an adventure. Life is an adventure. And if we start to reword it and reframe it, we can deal with it in a different way. And it very much sounds like it's adult labels, doesn't it? The stress and the anxiety and, and yeah, I suppose. And they even use words like depression. Yeah. I mean, seven-year-olds mm. using words like depression, and um, that, I really unpack that with them. And that's fabulous that you do because, yeah, it is concerning, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. And I know um, one other of my favourites when I first started in, at Geelong Grammar School, you were, I remember you had this beautiful yellow brick road that you'd created. Can you share a little bit about the, the lessons around that? Oh, well, that you know, mm. I, it's funny because some lessons I've done with them, they remember mm. and they want it again. Um, I don't know if you if you were at Geelong Grammar when I did <laughs> the monkey losing his mind. No. Well, I did that years ago and they say, can we do that monkey thing? <laughs> <laughs> I actually got some lycra and we, made, we all held the edges and made a trampoline. This poor monkey, you know, he was bouncing around. They're killing themselves laughing. So my classes aren't always yeah. silent. They're not. I mean, we end up, we yin and yang, mm. you know, we have... Lots of uh, exuberance and movement, and then we slide into the more silent practices. Mm. Um, so the yellow brick road, I still carry that round, and so now I use that because uh, I've made a three meter long quilted golden pathway. Mm. So they take their shoes off and they walk into the room on that. Wow! And that reminds them about what we're here for. Mm. So these props are just wonderful. Yeah. And I suppose it's been, you know, a significant journey and as much as there's, you know, there's research which is encouraging out there about the potential benefits of mindfulness, we know as educators sometimes it's that anecdotal evidence and what we're observing in students which is most powerful. So surely you've observed some impact in your time and can you share a little bit about your observations as to how students have benefited how the staff you've worked with have observed some benefit in students from the work that you've been doing? Oh, well, I just find this pretty much with every lesson. Mm. I mean, with every lesson, there are children who share. I always do my best to allow a sharing feedback time, but they often come to me as the class leaves and tell me beautiful little things. Mm. And, and, And so do teachers in staff rooms. And, you know, when I look back, and I have been looking back because I've just written a very long article Mm. with sort of a 
long-term overview of my work and there have been some extraordinary experiences with children with special needs and children um, who have experienced trauma and abuse at home. You know, just this year I'm doing a sequence of lessons with this spiritual exploration in a Catholic primary school in inner city and just about all of these children are refugees so you can imagine the trauma that they have been through and their parents I mean I can imagine a lot of their parents would have um, post-traumatic stress disorder and I had the most incredible experience of these dear little preps because again you know using wands (laughs) and I'm walking around the yard at um, morning tea and I suddenly find I've got this little beautiful African prep girl attached to my leg (laughs) and she she said Janet you're fun I love you and that just made my day because mindfulness can seriously be fun and if you teach it with that spirit of joy and discovery you're far less likely going to cause any harm and you're going to all the kids are going to want to lean in they do I just love it sometimes we're all sitting discussing this happened at Geelong Grammar recently that um, they're all sitting with their legs crossed in primary school and they get so excited they levitate (laughs) they actually kneel you know they're rising up (laughs) because they're so interested and they and they really want the speaking stick because they want to share what they've discovered and that's that's really authentic and you know they are truly engaged and that is an absolute joy so you know it it has this extraordinary potential to really make a profound difference i mean one little boy uh, this is an outlying um suburb of melbourne and i did a six week course there and i encountered this little boy who had experienced significant abuse. Mm. And he spent the first four lessons under the desk. Yep. And But it was so moving because he was totally present, totally engaged. He even did these little movements under the desk. Wow. But in lesson five, he came out. Mm. He literally came out. And in lesson six, he spent the whole lesson with us. And so, you know, it just takes your breath away. And so I see it kind of like little miracles. Yeah. and And just seeing children... And this is the, it's so important, I think, that it's not prescriptive, mm. that teachers, it's a relational thing, that yeah. it's eye to eye, it's establishing eye contact and things like the speaking stick are so important mm. because it, it reminds children to listen actively, to not always hold the stick, to wait for their turn and to be present and so, and that learning f- can flow straight into the classroom mm. to ultimately c- create more respectful and caring and kind classrooms, collaborative classrooms, which actually makes the teacher's job so much easier. Absolutely. And I suppose, um, you know, one of uh, the emphasis in our approach at Geelong Grammar School and I know something that you're very supportive of and have already mentioned in this podcast is um, the importance of s- teachers having their own practice um, really to I suppose enhance that connectedness and that uh, presence within the classroom. Can you share a little bit about the work you've done with teachers in the past and, and what's worked and well, hasn't maybe? Um, 
of course, again, you can't insist on no. it. <laughs> has to be an invitation. It's an invitation. So what I'm – and it's funny, over the years I've tried different tacks. And now where I'm at now, um, because I'm, I, am com- I have great compassion for teachers. Mm. I think they shoulder too much um, and the demands and, you know, the, it's overwhelming what they have to deal with. And I, I get that. I understand that. So I'm actually, when I do a, a staff PD now, I'm just saying, because I know, I know some of them think, oh, I need this like <laughs> all in yep. it is another thing I've got to do. Well, actually, what I'm asking them is just to put their toe in the water and not, not think about leading great long meditations because mm. that's ridiculous. But just to put their toe in the water and find their feet and realise that it can, the dosage can be small. You know, mm. just short practices that they can feel comfortable with um, and learn with the children. And I've seen that happen. Is that perhaps the most powerful learning? I know um, we always have our staff in the session, so classroom teachers will be learning alongside the students in their class. Do you think that's the most powerful learning um, in partnership with students and then they can bring that into their classroom environment instead of that all-staff PL kind of session? Yes, a lot of schools are opting for that now. I mean, I go in just with the staff Mm. and... And, you know, have a, a session, sometimes half a day, sometimes a day. And that is followed up with me coming back and doing sample sessions so that, t- you know, multiple teachers can watch. Mm. I, of, I usually give permission for them to video so that they can all get a sense of how I deliver and so they can sort of have starting points in their mind as to how they could proceed. Because that, it's really assisting more of a sustainable approach, isn't mm. it? You know, which is always our challenge, I suppose, in the wellbeing context and in the educational context. How do we make sure that all students have access on a regular basis to these practices, but also that their experience is meaningful? Mm. And I suppose around mindfulness, the uh, challenge is to do no harm. And I, I suppose that came to mind when you were speaking about the little boy who had come from a trauma background and I know there there is a little bit out there now or perhaps a lot but a little bit that I'm aware of around um, the challenges associated with um, conducting mindfulness practices with with young people who may have experienced trauma so do you Mm -hmm. have any background in that or research or maybe experience in in how to um, ensure that you do no harm? Oh well I've had years Mm. really because a lot of schools I've ended up working in and I worked for six years at Montague Special mm. School with children with all kinds of mm. um, situations and life experiences and uh, what I've found is that with a play-based approach mm. and an inquiry-based and using music, using fun visuals and of course that's been something I've really put a lot of time and effort into, you know, building up a toolkit, mm. um, it it's really creates a much safer process than just bang, going straight into practices. Yeah. So, and, it, and it, it has that spirit of curiosity, which is much safer than, you know, just boom, going in and sitting unprepared and <laughs> suddenly focusing on the breath, which cannot be helpful, not just for children, but for adults. 
Yeah, and I suppose, you know, that's often the way that mindfulness is incorporated into the classroom environment. Sit and do a breathing me- me- breathing, mm. a breathing meditation, sorry. Sit and do a body scan. So what are your thoughts on that? You know, it's your approach is more holistic. It, it's about creating a space. It's about um, being playful. What are your thoughts on starting a class with a five-minute meditation, which is the usual practice in schools that say we do mindfulness? Well, it can backfire. Yeah. And I have had um, first-hand experience Mm. of work because I sometimes work one-to-one with children. I work with a lovely 11-year-old boy and he said to me, Janet, please don't share any breathing practices Mm. because he's had all that you know, the prescriptive apps and he doesn't like it. Mm. It doesn't it doesn't resonate for him. He's not interested. So this is the thing to remember. It is not prescriptive. It's mm. not one one size fits all. And it does need thorough preparation. Mm. You need to actually, you know, not just bring these practices out of the blue. They they you need to spend time talking to children, giving them a context and stories are perfect for that. Mm. And so are fun, mindful movements. So I never take the attention straight to the breath. Never, mm. ever, I never have done. So you gradually work towards that. And I know we touched on adjusting your approach for adolescents. Um and they're, I suppose, a little bit more self-conscious and uh, play-based approaches don't always work with them. I mean, as you said, they can be stuck to the wall. What advice can you offer teachers who work in the secondary context as to how to provide that context and um, weigh in to mindfulness? Well, really thinking about their students and what Mm. they're interested in, Mm. what they want, what they want to achieve, you know, what... Um, what music would be right for them, what metaphors would work. Mm. So it's really, you think, getting into their minds, not your, not not just what you want to share, but, I mean, <laughs> and using, you know, look, that, that saying a picture paints a thousand words is so true. We forget words, yeah. but we don't forget images. They really land. And music apparently is amazing for the brain. Mm. Um, but I actually... Sometimes when I'm working with secondary, I take in a lucky bamboo. You know that plant that grows yeah. in... Look, and they're just fascinated. that The roots look just like dendrites on a neuron. So then I talk to them and I found this, that's so compelling for them. So it's what is going to be compelling. And yeah. I, know, I know that you are fascinated by the body and the mind and... Um, you know, I know that that's what you bring to to the work that you do with students and with staff. So would you encourage that physiological focus? Yes. Understanding the benefits of mindfulness, understanding how we're engaging our body and our mind through mindfulness practice? Absolutely. Yeah. Because I find that children and secondary kids are fascinated with physiology mm. and they're fascinated to find out a bit more about the brain and neuroscience and realise, I mean, you know, again, I'm just asking them questions, that realising that the mind does not stop at the neck. Yeah. <laughs> that the body is the unconscious mind. And, you know, so it's that they just love that. You've got them. So that's the preparation because then they're going to be much more open to the practices. And I suppose this is a much more nuanced, thorough 
evidence-based, I think, approach to, to mindfulness, mindfulness and it's the evidence of your journey and I know that you've drawn on so many different influences on your journey because you're always learning and bringing that to the classroom. And I know that schools so desperately want to do the best they can by their students and we know that mindfulness is one potential approach to, to supporting wellbeing. What, what advice would you offer schools that may not be able to take that thorough all-in approach um, but do want to introduce some mindfulness practice to the classroom environment, to the school environment, um, what, what would be an entry point for them, do you think? Very simple, mm. you know, really short practices and finding a very simple structure of information that is going to be of interest and create meaning and purpose mm. so that children will want to do the practices. Yeah. There's nothing worth... You just can't make children do these practices mm. and it's, it does backfire if, you know, they don't feel the meaning and the purpose and the relevance. Yeah. And so really the preparation is key. And that can be done in all kinds of ways. You think of the resource that any school has. They've got science teachers. Yeah. They've got phys ed teachers. They could get together and, and, you know, work out their own way of presenting this material in preparation. It could be, um, you know, school assemblies mm. or air focus days. So there's so many... There's so many resources already in a school. Um, I'm sure they've got some fabulous visual aids of the body and the brain. And so they just look to see what they've got, who they've got, Mm. and then start with small steps. They don't even have to think initially of meditation. It's just about starting with pauses. The word mindfulness apparently originally meant to remember. Mm. Remembering what matters now. And that's that's the start. And really just that drawing on our strengths, drawing out on our collective wisdom and knowing that, um, you know, in partnership with external consultants can be helpful at times, but also recognising what, what you mm. have in the school community that you can draw on to begin your journey. Yes. Tell mm. me a little bit, um, I know you've been doing work with our middle school students around the ants and the, is it the ants and the pets? Is that the, what's the, what's the um, what have you been doing with our year fives and sixes? Uh, we've been do- going on a fabulous journey through yeah. Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. And there's so much material there. So, And, you know, the fabulous thing about that kind of story is Alice is – she rocks. Yeah. <laughs> She's amazing <laughs> what she has to get through in that story and then relating it to them. And so – and, you know, uh, starting the year with a net – to catch the nonsense and realising that there is nonsense going on around us sometimes but there's also this nonsense, these nonsense thoughts, the automatic negative thoughts, the ants. That's right. Yeah. And so – and but you see with a playful approach, not with kind of judgement but more with curiosity and that's where you're using a story so wonderful because it is playful mm. and using music and so – and that – uh, kind of invokes inquiry and curiosity, which is not judgment, because judgment gets us into trouble. And now, what have what have our students been doing? You, didn't you put a display up in the classroom? Um, well, in different classrooms, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, so I actually remember Rihanna and I got all these hot pink. That's right. <laughs> nets. Yes. So that was to capture the non mm. and Alice's 
perfect mm. that story because the nonsense in that story. So, the, and the idea was that they put this up at the front of the class mm. and caught their nonsense, and each child could catch their own nonsense thoughts, put them in there. And then have a golden container because if you pause and you recognise the nonsense, you will ultimately come up with, with a wise thought, a golden thought. And that went in the golden jar. So that's a year, you see, that's there for the whole year. To, and that is a reminder because mm. we forget all this stuff. But we need visual reminders and that's where I love it if schools... Um, timetable, a meditation, a week. Mm. But you need more than that because neurons, it doesn't really change that much if you only meditate once a week. Mm. It's, it needs to be revisited. It needs drip feeding. So it needs to be brought to life more. And I suppose it's really with that example of the uh, the jar and the net, it's really about, again, creating that visual, um, symbolic understanding of the way the human mind works our tendencies, our negativity bias, but also the wisdom that comes from mindfulness practice. So it's actually a lesson around the value of mindfulness that creates a space for the sitting practice, for, for the practice that you might engage in you know, throughout the course of the week. So I think that's a great example that teachers can use in the classroom themselves. Mm. So you are a wealth of knowledge and resource. Janet, can you tell us um, if there are teachers who are interested in exploring the resources that you've created further, where they can go? Well, they can certainly mm-hmm. visit my thank you, Rhiannon. They can right. certainly <laughs> visit my website, which is meditationcapsules.com. And I have written two books. Uh, 2010, I wrote Meditation Capsules, a mindfulness program for children. And last year, A Head Heart Start for Life, uh, creative mindful discoveries for young children. But it also has eight years worth of learning and new practices that I actually don't just use with young children. So even though it's written for young children, I use some of those practices in secondary. So you see these practices, Mm. it depends on how they're worded and how they're presented. And and you can just adapt them. And again, I suppose that's what we as educators need to do. We need to Mm. adapt, you know, in real time, sometimes to suit the context and the young people in front of us. Mm. And I know you're always reading, you're always learning, as I've said, and this is a journey and a lifelong journey. And for those educators who are perhaps at the beginning of their journey, where would you suggest they look first? Um, Well, I think if they're open to reading, Mm. um, John Kabat-Zinn's books are wonderful. But going back even further for me, my journey started with Ian Gawler. I mean, his books are excellent. And and just, you know, building up your foundation and exploring. And, of course, there's all the apps. Yes. <laughs> and that's an extraordinary resource. So, you know, being curious yourself to see and discovering it for each teacher their authentic way mm. and, you know, feeling growing their confidence and enjoying it. Yeah. It's not just a duty. Yeah. It's, it's uh, you know, people say to me, oh, you must be so disciplined because I – meditate twice a day it's not discipline it's actually devotional practice I need it Mm. it's actually caring for my body and mind if I want it to deliver for me I need to invest and and it can be fun 
Yeah, and it, it's, you know, I suppose it's about lifelong evolution, isn't it? So once we start start on the path, we can only benefit, really, and mm. our students can only benefit. So And behind every great thing mm. anybody does, there's a mind. Very true. <laughs> so we have to care we for it. We have to look after it, don't we? Do. We do. Mm. Well, I think on that note, I would like to say thank you so much, Janet, for today, for being here on the podcast, for the work you do the significant work you do with Geelong Grammar School. Our community continues to benefit so much, but also what you've contributed to our understanding of mindfulness in education. So thank you for your time. Thank today. you, Rianne. It's lovely to speak to you. Thank Likewise. you. Likewise. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please feel free to refer to the fact sheet, which is available on our website at www.instituteofpositiveeducation.com.